Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is longtime sports commentator, longtime voice of the South Carolina Gamecocks, and now dabbling a little music while he works on his golf game. Great friend, Charlie McAlexander. Charlie, how are you today, buddy? Verge, I'm doing pretty good. Not bad for a guy who's been around the, <laughs> the ballpark a few times. <laughs> I hear that, sir. I don't think there's ever been a more unique time in sports that we're getting ready to face especially in college football with this name, image, and likeness, and how it's impacting not only the coaches, but it's in- impacting the players and recruiting and the universities. It's a, And it looks like there's nobody manning the ship. That's the good old NCAA, <laughs> and uh, there's always been a problem with them. Yeah. Uh, maybe the greediest people on earth. Probably so. Uh, I think that the, the thing that's going to kill them, is that let's say player X is getting 50 grand for this endorsement and player Y is getting 100,000, mm-hmm. which is very probable at these big schools. Yep. And then another player, Z, is getting like 10 grand because he doesn't know how to work it. He doesn't have someone to help him. And so you get inside a locker room. And -and so-and-so says, well, I'm getting so-and-so, and and I'm getting this. Man, you don't have that. You don't have this. You don't have that. And I'm going to tell you what. It's going to tear them apart. Team decay. 
Team decay, and it will. To be a team, you must be a T E A M. Yep. And to be able to handle that, as far as coaches' administration go, is going to be very difficult. Uh, I think players should be getting money, but the way they're doing this is nuts, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't think it's good for the game. I really don't think it's good for the game. Because you got to. Imagine, like I was just recently watched this interview that Saban did, and he's he's really on fire about how oh, Texas A&M good. became he, how he, Texas oh, A&M man. got the number one recruiting class, and that's interesting because it kind of reminds me. We'll get into this a little bit later with Live Golf and the PGA Tour, right? So sure, at Texas A&M, University of Texas. There's a lot of oil money, tons, tons. Oklahoma, right. Oklahoma. There's coming gonna, into the SEC. Yeah, I mean, there's getting yeah. ready to be. It's going to turn into a bidding war. It is going to turn into a bidding war. And the, the, I think where you're going to see the team decay. Oh, I do too. Is I do between too. the quarterbacks, the skill set, and the offensive and defensive linemen that don't have the stats to brag. And you know, I think that that boy from the quarterback from Alabama, I think he made close to a million last year. Yeah. I mean, at some point, that's going to get under the skin of somebody that's protecting him, or. You know, hey man, you wouldn't be getting that kind of money if if, if you weren't eating. If man, you need to get me the ball more. Yeah, I've got to get my share. Uh-huh. You know, come on, you get. And then if you start infighting, now Saban is one of the few people who could stop it mm-hmm. among players. I think he's one of the very, very few people that could stop it. In the case of Texas A and M, I don't know whether they can stop it. Yeah. That's just my opinion. Yeah. But I think Saban can. And there's some other schools that that will handle it pretty well if they find a formula that won't upset everybody. The players cause infighting, call this, cause this, cause that. Um, but somebody pretty smart, smarter than they are now, is going to have to do something about it. Yeah. It almost seems like. In some ways, this is a way for the old guard to reemerge back into the limelight of college football, because you know, essentially, since the scholarship situation changed in the in the mid '80s, you know, back in the mid '80s, you could guarantee who was in the top ten every year in the preseason. You could almost be sure that that's who was going to be in the top ten at the end of the season, because they stockpiled and hoarded all the good players. Well, as soon as somebody just broke away and decided to go to Louisville or um, for that matter, Boise State. The, those are two schools that kind of uh, – they weren't big time until a great quarterback decided he wasn't going to sit and ride the pine, went to that school, had an unbelievable season, and they went 11-1. and one. How about Joe Burr at LSU? Yeah, how about that? Same deal. Same deal. And to me, like, that's going to be the most fascinating piece is, like, there – it's been a while since Nebraska has been anything. Long time. It's been a while since – you know, Notre Dame has won a national championship. They keep on getting into the – but they're not – I don't think they necessarily are one of the four best teams all the time. I don't either. But they sneak in because they got a nice schedule. And they're Notre Dame. And they Dame. got a name. And they, they got, got a, a brand. Name. USC, Penn State, Yeah, Michigan. now USC is shifting gears. Can you believe As that? is UCLA. No, I can't. I cannot believe it. It's just so cutthroat. Yeah. Um, it's a shame to see, in my opinion – but then there are others out there uh, who would say, oh, yeah, they're pros. Anyway, let them get the money they should get. Well, there's more to all this than that. Yeah. And until they find a way 
to make it work, uh, then I, I think the first couple of years is going to be fine. I don't think you'll see a lot of infighting. But as the time goes on, unless they change it and they tweak it in a big way, I think you're going to see the deterioration of uh, NCAA and football, college football. Yeah, at the end of the day, it looks like we're headed towards two big conferences that will probably break away. And They'll probably break away from the NCAA. Which is, which is a shame that you have – I mean, the SEC's fine. Man, they're good. They're golden. Oh, yeah. They could they could put it up to 22 teams if they wanted to because people are dying to get in because of all the money yeah. and the TV exposure. Yeah. But it's just – it's it really bothers me a lot. But, you know, on the other hand, I've been through it all for 35 years and seeing how things are. Mm-hmm. And in many cases – not that I don't still love it, mm-hmm. and certain teams I have a great affection for, but uh, I just kind of say, heck, they're going to blow it up. Everybody's going to get their money. I'm not. <laughs> so just go and enjoy the party. That's right. Like in, like they say down in Louisiana, let's go to La Casa, have a party. Love and that's it. what they'll do. Yep. Do you think Nick Saban's the best, best coach in the history of college football? Yeah. You do? Yeah. And that, that's tough for me to say. I think Bear Bryant is just a little bit behind. I think it's really kind of a shared number one because uh, I got to know Bryant. Bryant did some nice things for me when I was a young guy coming mm-hmm. along in this business. And uh, just a fabulous, fabulous football coach. And Saban, in the different eras, Bryant – the best by far. In this new era that we are in, Saban is the best. And I don't think Bryant could have done what Saban is doing now, and I don't think Saban could have done what Bryant was doing then. Interesting. Yeah. How much How much better do you think Bryant was than Paterno or Bowden? A lot. Really? I'm a well, bit prejudiced, but just, you know, all the – Years I've had to look around and meet people and find out the inside of things and how people really were and that kind of a thing. I think Bryant. Interesting. Really think Bryant. In your in your time, what what struck you the most compelling and interesting and honorable about Bear Bryant? Well, he was a good old boy who was smart, smart, smart. He really knew football. He was tough. And I think when he told his players, you need to go, you got to call your mama. I think he really meant that because coming, growing up in Arkansas and going what he, he was going through and to get where he got. And then, you know, going to Kentucky and winning the SEC, they gave Adolph Rupp a Cadillac. They gave Bear Bryant a watch. <laughs> and then that caused him to leave Kentucky. Yeah. But um, there are just so many things. I really, really liked the man a lot. Interesting. Really liked him a lot. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything bad about him. I, I really haven't. No. Because I mean, like I'm I'm from Pennsylvania, so I'm a Penn Stater, right? Yeah. And he, Paterno loved him. Yeah. They were like. I he, think they loved him and feared him. Interesting. And respected him. Yeah. Probably, All those. Yeah. Uh, combined. Yeah. I think that there was a mutual admiration between how they ran their programs. I don't think Bobby Bowden ran the program quite like those two did. Uh-uh. But he uh, he won a lot. And, but but what Bowden did was just playing 
anybody and everybody. Yeah. And then taking them where I saw Florida State before, uh, you know, he got there. And I saw him in Jackson, Mississippi, and I forget who they're Mississippi State, I think, they were playing. And they had some really dynamic players, but they did not have enough of them. And then yeah. he got the dynamic players. And he was ahead of the game on what he did. There are a lot of people that don't agree with what he did and how he did it. I'm kind of that way, too, on that. Mm-hmm. But he did it. No doubt. He coached way too long. Oh, yeah. Way, way too long. So did Paterno. Oh, yeah. Way. Yeah, way too long. And there's several of them that, that have it. But just like Bryant said, when he retired, he said, in a month, I'll be dead. And he just about was, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember that day. That That is, with people like him and like Saban and some other people, they're just so – it's not so much about – Money, in some few instances, most of it is. Yeah. And everybody who's really great at it should get their fair share. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think there's uh, – they're like Saban and a few others that really, truly love the game. Yeah. And they're going to compete against you regardless. You know, they're, they're not going to take anything – I mean, just like this deal, they're trying to cool it off. Between Texas A&M and Alabama, Jimbo Fisher and then Saban. And that was one of the most interesting things I have ever seen no in qu- my lifetime. Yeah. It was, was really compelling. And also, I think Saban was right. Well, yeah. There's so much money at <laughs> Texas A&M. They want to win so badly. And Jimbo Fisher worked his way up. You know, Florida mm-hmm. State and his head coach wasn't real thrilled about him, I don't think, very much. Yep. And I think there's a reason. Yep. That guy's a gang leader. <laughs> and he's gonna he's gonna get you. But the thing that also interests me is everybody's making such a big thing about Texas A and M beating Alabama at College Station on a field goal, as if they had won the national championship. Hell, that's one game. Yep. And they, they've got a lot of players, and they'll continue to get players, speaking of Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. But I think people made too much of it. One game. Yeah, one game. Johnny Manziel. One game. Well, that's the when you, when you get to be a legend, right, and you become the national championship for everybody every week. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that that's, a, that's an interesting – place that's where like coach k is with what was with duke i'm sure that's how it was with john wooden you know and you know anytime you take on the legends and beat them it's like tear down the goalpost and run them out of the stadium yeah we have it's we have to sell it's our national it's our national championship that's it's really interesting uh you spoke about john wooden and i met him i did uh some cbs host radio games game of the week uh and I had UCLA, and I can't remember who they were playing, but they played at UCLA, and John Wooden was sitting right behind me with his wife. And I've heard about all the books and everything else. There was also a very wealthy car dealer oh, really? that helped John Wooden. Huh. Yes, he did. Interesting. And then with Shashevsky, and what I get off the grapevine is – 
Remember when Shashevsky had a hip replacement and he could not coach? Well, they didn't have a great team at that time anyway. And uh, I forget the assistant that moved up, and they lost all these games. It's my understanding, and somebody out there correct me if I'm wrong, Shashevsky did not want those games to count against his overall record, (laughs) which I I don't. I think it's – <laughs> not real classy. I'll yeah. just put it that way. Yeah. That's not what Dean Smith would have done. No. You no. spent much time with Dean Smith? A time? little bit. And, of course, I was with Eddie Fogler a long time. Oh, yeah. And uh, Jeff Lebo, who played for him, and other players who played for him. Um, it's funny with, with, you know, Dean Smith's great coach, you know, uh, all these different stories about him. One of the things he had to have, because he was like a chain smoker, he, he'd get over there and <laughs> like wait to the court, and he'd take a cigarette, they said, and just take half of it, <laughs> and then go on out. They're just funny stories about people, and our life is about stories. Yeah, um, It's not all about um, wins and losses, though – what I'm saying is really not true because it is among the public yeah. and the folks who put them. It's all about wins and losses because they're all realizing now a lot of these guys are not student athletes. Mm-hmm. They're not. They didn't intend to be. There are those who who have that drive and initiative and can see further down the road what they can do who are excellent students. And that's wonderful. Yeah. They're kind of like – Paid or unpaid mercenaries, for oh the, yeah, for the benefit of national ranking and yeah, the the arena. They're gladiators. Yeah. Is probably a better way to put it. I don't blame the the thing that's so bad. These kids are growing up who have great great ability, and they're not told what they cannot do very much. Coaches try, mm-hmm. but then there are other coaches. They just let them pass, whether it's in school or you know. Just to have them because they score touchdowns or shoot the three or dunk it or hit home runs. It's just uh, – it's, it's, it's quite a conundrum. Yeah. What do you think about the possibility of NCAA football going to like a eight- or nine-game conference schedule and then having an NCAA tournament just like they do in basketball so that we don't see the best players opt out of the bowl games? Because these bowl games now, it's like they've like the, having the NCAA, the Final Four, the BCS has ruined the bowl games. It has ruined the tradition of college football to the point where now only two games, well, actually three games matter: the semifinals and the finals. Because the the generally speaking, the Fiesta Bowl, unless it's part of that program, which is it's, it goes in a rotation, yeah, nobody cares. The Rose Bowl, unless it's part of the rotation, nobody cares. The people who care about those other bowl games, and it's ridiculous to have six and six teams going to a bowl. <sighs> yeah. Or just fans, you know, alumni, all that kind of stuff. And they love their team, and they get to go to a bowl game. But when you look up in the stands, it's, some, it's pathetic with yeah. some of them. I mean, bleak. it's just it's, not bad. It goes beyond that. Yeah. I think there's a way uh, that that – needs to change in, in some form or fashion. But just think about how awesome it would be to have a one versus 64. And like, and, and, and you it, play too many games though. No, you wouldn't even with 13 or 14. If you go eight, you'd end up with 14 where they play already. 
because they have the the normal schedule right. of twelve, uh-huh. the, the their conference championship, and then if there's if they go to the final, they play fifteen games. Yeah, that's a lot of games. It is a lot of games if you're not getting paid. Right. That's a very very good point. Yeah. yeah. But with football to play so many games, uh, there's a greater chance of injury. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the big things. But then. As, let's just take Alabama. As hard as they practice, I mean, they get after it. Their practices are physical. And I'm told that so many of those linemen get beat up so badly because everything's so physical. And then in the games, you know, it's they, folks are turning up the, the heat on you in the kitchen if you're Alabama. Oh, yeah. And so it gets more physical. So. That means that some of those players are more likely to pass up that next season um, for more money instead yeah. of a championship ring. That's right, or sit out the bowl, sit out an unnecessary bowl game. Absolutely. Like I think, well, I guess Leonard Fournette at LSU was kind of the first person to kind of like that's right, kind of step he down. Was. It's now becoming coming on almost a guarantee, except you know that quarterback from Ole Miss last year, literally the third play of the Boy, game. He's amazing. Yeah, just amazing. And got his ankle injured, and I'm like, "There's the reason why." I mean, lucky it didn't cost him that Matt Corral. Yeah, it didn't cost him too much. He got drafted, and he's gonna he's gonna be fine. But like that, almost had a sniff of disaster city. But the thing about him that was so terrific was that he was doing it for his teammates. He went through all the blood, sweat, and tears with them. He's a heck of a competitor. If you saw him in a street fight, I guarantee you he's winning. Yeah. And he was in a bunch of them, as I understand it. Oh, yeah. Tough guy. Oh, yeah. Very tough guy. But he loved that place, and he loved his school, and he loved everything about it. Mm-hmm. And he was going to play. Yeah. And I really admire that. Uh, me too, especially in the world we live in today. Oh, yeah. There isn't much of that left. Mm-mm. Not anymore. Well, in your time at South Carolina, would you spend much time with Lou Holtz? Yep. What's your uh, – What's your feeling on Lou Holtz? Because I'm not a big fan of him, like how he how he's on TV. Obviously, he's got a. I don't think he shtick. speaks. For, he's got, it's a shtick. But I, like, he almost seems like it's not. That's not who he really is when he's see the public speaking when he's on. It's TV. not. Um, he has a gift for that. Uh, he is a very unusual human being, to say the least. Really? Oh yeah. I I, I really didn't like him very much. Interesting. I just didn't, and I spent. How many years with him? Six, I guess. And that's doing the games and doing his coaches shows and stuff like that. You know, every school he's been to is put on probation. Except Notre Dame? Notre Dame was. Oh, really? They had a scandal there. Oh, that's right. They did. With tickets and a lady who was providing players, uh, make sure I got it right, airplane fare to go to games and give them tickets and you know, you can always sell those tickets to somebody <laughs> who wants to buy them for a lot of money. Just yeah. all different kinds of things like that. I just – a really complex human being, and what you see is not what you get media-wise. Interesting. And I'll just leave it at that. Interesting. But, no, I'm not a big fan. Because I, like he strikes me like I always – in the times that I've worked with – He's as narcissistic really? as you can get. Really? Yeah. So I have all the like the NFL players that I've coached golf with, yeah. a couple of them have either went to Notre Dame or South Carolina, and they they talked about how he burns people down, like just burns it to the ground. Like you can only work for him for so long until you're like, oh, that's right, smoked. 
Yeah. And I thought that that was a pretty, that's a pretty telling trait. That's a pretty telling trait. He's, anyway, it's just. uh, Interesting. mm, Very interesting. I I shake my head as I'm looking at you because I just, uh, the six years I spent with him, I mean, you're shaking your head. I mean, he's a good football coach. Mm Mm-hmm. He knows how to get players, and uh, he's almost – well, I think in a lot of ways he is abusive to players. Yeah. And that's kind of old school. His his hero is Woody Hayes. Well, mm-hmm. well, there you go. There you have it. How about Steve Spurrier? I don't know him that well. No. I've only been around him a couple of times. There are things I really – I think he's a heck of a football coach. And he's not scared of people. Uh, I think he's got a large ego, but it all works for him. And I admire, I really admire him as a coach. I just think he's terrific. Mm. I think one of the things that I've talked about a lot on the podcast is that college sports is a lot about the coach. Professional sports is a lot about the players. And there aren't many coaches that can go from college to professional and just about back to Lou Holtz. He went to the Jets, had Joe Namath, and had him run an option. Yeah. I mean, what? What? <laughs> he didn't last there very long. No, did he? he did not. And no. I just felt like Jimmy Johnson's the only one that I can think of. And he, I mean, think about what he recruited. Not, well, no, oh. he didn't recruit it. Barry Switzer's the one that recruited it. He built the Cowboys, Jimmy Johnson did. Oh, yeah. Barry Switzer was the uh, benefactor. That's, that's right. Of, uh, of an unbelievable mm-hmm. football team. But there isn't many. Like Saban struggled, you know, uh, Spurrier struggled. There's a lot of people that, that oh, yeah. were brought in. And it's just like I can't imagine how difficult it is to coach a Peyton Manning at the professional level. I think it would be easy. Well, I think it, it – it, Oh, man. Any I, of the Mannings, they're coaches anyway. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, to me, it just seems like it would be more difficult. What a blessing for a head coach. Though. But, but when you're a college coach, that's almost like your ego is how much you've – you build up these players. Like, I, I just think that Coach K would struggle. I think Calipari would struggle. I think that most of the college football coaches. Calipari's done it. Patino did it. And it, and it didn't work out. It didn't work out because it's, not, it's no longer about them. In college, it's about them. Yeah. It's the coaches. And in, the, in, the, in professional sports, it's definitely the player. Oh, yeah. And it's really hard to be able to transition. I think that what Phil Jackson did with the Bulls and the Lakers – is mm. somewhat extraordinary because he well, he's was, extraordinary. Yeah. To be able to take – He's into Zen and all those things. Mm-hmm. Maybe it works. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, maybe so. I think it's interesting. I mean, think about it. He essentially coached five oh. of the greatest 25 mm-hmm. players that have, that have played the game. Yep. And certainly number one, and, and you know, wherever you decide to put Kobe and Shaq, you know, in that they're all top teners for sure. Oh, yeah. Right? And to be able to handle Kobe and Shaq at the same time, I can't. I mean, I don't, I don't know what would be worse, Michael Jordan by himself or Kobe and Shaq simultaneously. But it would seem like Kobe and Shaq simultaneously would be more difficult than Jordan. I don't know. But it's, it's interesting uh, how he was able to navigate that professional world. And I don't, I don't think he was even interested in being a college coach. That didn't interest him. He was, mm-hmm. he was more in the professional world. I just find it fascinating how some – some coaches are wired for one side and some coaches are wired for the other, but not many, well, hardly ever anybody's ever been good at both. Nope. 
in any sport for that matter. It's just like uh, you're a really good corn fairy player, and a lot of them move right up. Yep. But a lot of them think they're going to, and they can't handle the PGA Tour. Yeah. It's a. Uh, it's almost all in the mind. Oh, certainly it's all in the mind. It's what you believe in yourself, and some people, some people try to force their system on players and some people try to allow the players to help them understand they're going to coach them and that's that's a gift to be able to to be able to dance with that it's similar to you know in in my world like i can't teach somebody who doesn't swing at it naturally fast to hit it 350 yards that's that's fast twitch muscle motion what about me well, I mean, outside of you, we don't. No, 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 no. I, I'm, yeah, but wait, like, this is an honest question. Yeah. Finish that. Like to me, it's just more of a, a situation of I, I don't ever try to get uh, a bomber to be somebody who hits it overly straight, and I don't ever try to get somebody who's radically accurate to become a bomber. I try to get people to just incrementally get better at something while maintaining their greatness, and. That is one of the, the harder things because I hit the ball far. Many people come to me for power, but I don't teach them power. I teach them the best of what their body can do, can do with what they've been given. And well, Payne that, Stewart, I never will forget him saying, uh, of course, he has a very good friend here, Lamar Haynes, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you know, and has played with him at SMU. They're very, very good friends, and the three of us were talking – and Payne said, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said, whatever you can do to get that ball in the hole and score, and people may say, oh, well, you look at a Hubert Green, that was a funky swing, Furick, a funky swing, but if you can get it in the hole, uh-huh. it's okay. That's exactly right. I don't know. There's definitely – like there, There's a fine line there, mm-hmm. I know, but – Still, it's still I mean, like a perfect example, like right now, Cameron Smith and Rory McIlroy and what yeah. we saw at the Open Championship. It is so hard for me to believe that a, a major champion like Rory could hit every green in regulation, have no bogeys, and lose to a guy who was four shots behind him yeah. in a major championship. But Cam Smith's golf swing doesn't look anything like Rory's. It's mm-hmm. not elegant. It's not. It's nothing more than it just. It's functional. But he has the equalizer. It's called that putter. But his putter, it is it is an equalizer. And Rory's having a good putting year. He's at you know, the top fifteen in putting. But he he putted good enough to not three putt. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any bad putts, he just didn't make anything. But Cameron Smith, goodness gracious, it was just like the hole looked five times bigger for him than anybody else. Well, back to the my question earlier, uh, when I said, What about me? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a fifteen to eighteen handicapper. And I can go out there and hit the ball pretty good and look like I'm a better player than I am. But there's always something in there. And then I'm turned 77 in August. Yeah. Uh, your philosophy would be just play the game, make sure you're doing the things you should do. Is that it, to be competitive well, and enjoy it? Because if you go beyond your expectations at my age, well, you just have what to, do you think? You have to match your ability. Yeah. With your expectations, and mm-hmm. and, and I, I will always put the expectations into a process, not a result. Yeah, you know. So like to me, if I would just be looking at the simple fundamentals of the golf swing to make sure you're not like the biggest problems I see most people aim incorrectly, 
they don't pivot. They, they kind of sway into their right leg if they're a right-handed golfer. They don't turn correctly. And then if you are aimed poorly and you don't pivot, there's no other fundamental that you can do because your brain won't let you because it's trying to hit it to where you're looking, not where you're aimed. Yeah. And bad things happen. So once we got your basically your setup and your mechanics understood, it'd be my, my idea would be to figure out what strategical errors you make. How can I make you more efficient inside of 40 yards and eliminate three putts? If I can get you, like I had some players that I coach called them Virgilisms. It's like no penalized tee balls and or obstructed tee balls. That means if you have to, if you can't hit your next shot to the green, it's obstructed, and it's basically penalized. If you pull a wedge out, whether it's from one ten or ten, you only hit one wedge a hole. No three putts and no missed putts inside of four feet. If you do those things, it's hard to shoot over seventy five. Mm-hmm. Period. So then you add them all, like add those up to your score, and you shoot eighty seven, but you have two balls in the water off the tee and one ball out of bounds. I'll take eighty seven, and then and you get. I mean, you know, yeah, sure. with my game, sure. But then you also factor in you what have three, you three could putts. have done. That's right. If you just, I'm not even asking you to be awesome with your wedges, but no. just get it on the green. I'm not asking you to be Cam Smith. Just don't three putt. I'm not asking you to drive it like Rory. Just don't penalize yourself. And it's, it's really hard to shoot a high score. My job would be to dissect the things that are happening analytically. Once you're mechanically sound, my job is to help you with your decision-making, your strategy, and your ability to eliminate the mistakes you can't afford to make. So, you know, we're talking about this when I came on with you. It want this to be about stories. And to me, that's you've hit the nail on the head because everybody – especially people who love sports, uh, love the stories, the things that make people work, athletes work, what, what happens to them that makes them go sideways, whatever it may be. Uh, I really got turned on to golf, and I hadn't God, hardly played golf at all. I was working for a, a TV station in Memphis, and I used to love the Danny Thomas Memphis Classic mm-hmm. and Old Colonial Country Club. So I was there when Guy Berger. Shot 59? Yep. Wow. Covering that. And then before that, I was in Jackson, Mississippi, and I did a Dr. Pepper golf clinic with Lee Trevino. He was working his way up to Memphis to play, you know, in that tournament. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was amazing. Truly, truly amazing. Uh, of course, talked all the time, didn't stop. And he was hitting balls off a Dr. Pepper bottle. I didn't think you could do that. They had a par three set up over, you know, a little pond there, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's hitting them off there and hitting them on the green. A lot of them you can put for birdie. I just couldn't believe it. And he said, you know, people think I'm uh, poor boy from, from Texas, Mexico, and uh, used to play barefooted and play with one club for bets and stuff like that. And they think I can't. I, the only thing I can do is cut the ball. He said, I can do anything I want to with that golf ball. And then he'd hit draws. He'd hit draws. He'd hit draws. He'd hit his regular fade and stuff like that. But he was so entertaining. And so uh, we were walking back, and I said, I'm going to be at the Danny Thomas when you're playing. He said, why don't you walk with me for a round? That was really something. I don't think I'll ever forget that. And I walked with him the first round. And just watching him talk, hit the ball, rocket straight, 
you know, just beautiful, beautiful stuff. And he turned me a couple times. What do you think about that? <laughs> That's first round, though. I don't think that would happen later on. Sunday, on. yeah. So Palmer is playing in that tournament. And they get to 18 at the Old Colonial, which was at the time a short par five, if memory serves me correctly. Mm-hmm. There's water on the left. Well, Trevino is up on 18 green about to putt. I mean, it's a heated race, Palmer, Trevino, and then a couple of other people, maybe Hubert Green. Uh, I can't remember who else now. But Palmer decides to hit a driver that reaches the green as Trevino is pulling his putter back and rolls right by him. And I turned and I looked and I see Palmer is sprinting up to 18. And Trevino is hot. He is really hot. Well, he gets there, and Trevino won't speak to him. I mean, it's, it looks like his head's about to blow off. So everybody's waiting for the next day, the final round on Sunday, and they're like a stroke apart, two strokes apart, something like that. So everybody's waiting for him. I mean, there's a huge crowd. They're going to walk out to putting green. And uh, Palmer tries to say something kind of funny and Trevino no won't have it and then they go to uh they barely spoke at all I mean Trevino was really mad and then they went to hit balls and so forth it loosened up a little bit there Trevino Trevino ended up winning the tournament Mm -hmm. but uh I really got to enjoy that that kind of stuff being around people like that uh so many athletes and coaches that I got to be friends with, and it kind of carried on. Not that I'm a friend of Trevino's. I was just mm-hmm. uh, one of those things that happened. But there are a lot of coaches that uh, that did so many things that I really admired. And then athletes. And you've probably heard this story before, but Ken Lindsay, who was the head of the PGA yeah. at one time, he was an assistant pro at Colonial Country Club in Jackson, Mississippi. He had played at Memphis State very good player and his coach told him uh he said ken i want you to go look at this kid from alabama see if he can play college golf well since ken is from alabama originally he goes up he looks at this player and he he comes back and he said what do you think ken he said well guy's got an odd swing coach i don't know that he can play college golf really i said he said i like him but I just don't think he can do it. Well, that was Hubert Green, (laughs) and Ken just laughs about it. Because I've seen athletes, you've seen them too, you think, I can't play. But they can. Oh, yeah. But they can. Absolutely. I tell you, a guy turned his game on is Bill Breen. Yeah, absolutely. Made it to the uh, Seniors Open, yeah. He's a very talented player and outrageously humble human being. He is. Love that guy. Wonderful guy. From right here in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. He's a super guy. Great player. Got an unbelievable short game. Yeah. I call I call players like him boa constrictors. <laughs> you, yeah. You, you, think they're, you think he's hugging you, but he's really he's killing you. He's squeezing you. He's yeah, killing yeah, you. He's killing you. He's killing you. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. When you uh, think back over your times, when you, when you had the – like I'd give you a couple of choices. I love these kind of things. Bo Jackson or Herschel Walker? Both of them. Who was the best of the two? I don't think you can judge that. No? 
I mean, I've talked to people about that a long, long time. You know, they could have ended up at the same school. Mm-hmm. Now, what would that have been like? Wow. Illegal. <laughs> illegal. It would have been illegal. <laughs> but I got to be around Herschel when I was working at Georgia. Yeah. And uh, I remember when I got to talk to him, I said, Herschel, you, you probably don't remember me. He said, Charlie Mack, yeah. How you doing? Because I had done some stuff at, at Georgia there on the air, and he was just a great guy. And we found out on documentaries that are done on him, he just wanted to kill you when he played you. He never sp- He didn't do the chatter and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember watching him practice for the first time when we had the old Skyriders tour and all of us would go around. And they had a turf down on the practice field at Georgia. And I was standing with Dooley, and they were running, you know, break the huddle, go up and run plays. When Herschel Walker left his stance, there was a sound that I really can't explain. It was like uh, an airplane, a big jet taking off. Just, it was, it's almost scary. (laughs) You'd think he maybe burned the turf in his first two steps. Uh, And Bo Jackson, a friend of mine who's deceased now, great, great play-by-play announcer, Jim Fife at Auburn, uh, told me, he said, Charlie, he said, we got one that's as good as him. I said, you've got to be kidding. (laughs) He said, no, he's as good as he is. Believe me. I mean, Herschel was – I mean, look at all the sports he played. Bo Jackson. I mean, they could do anything. Yeah, there were players you just you won't see. I think still for a long time, at least in my lifetime, which may be shorter than longer. <laughs> but I just don't think we will. Yeah, to me, I think Bo Jackson is the greatest athlete of my lifetime. Gosh, just when you can be an, a pro bowler and a major league all star, hit a home run and score a touchdown mm-hmm. in the game. And the dude had a rifle for an arm. Oh, yeah. I mean, there isn't anything he couldn't do. And it's just, and I know the Herschel Walker, eerily similar. I just felt like Bo was more explosive and a little more versatile. But ask Bill Bates if he remembers being hit by Herschel Walker. Yeah. Boy, that was that was that introduced Herschel Walker to the to the world when he just absolutely trucked Bates at UT. I, I talk about being fortunate. When I was in Jackson, Mississippi, Walter Payton, yeah, was there. We got to be very good friends. Really? Yeah, got to be good friends. And I'd go watch Jackson State practice, and then I'd uh, watch him play. I'd be on the sidelines when they played in Jackson at Memorial Stadium, and then when he finished his rookie year with the Chicago Bears, he'd come into the TV station and, you know, had a high-pitched voice. <laughs> he said, Charlie Mack, I want to be in TV. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, if you want to, but I don't know, we'll work at it. And so he and I did some things together. It was just fascinating. He he was a national soul train dance contest finalist. Is that right? Oh, he was a, an amazing dancer. Huh. He had not played golf. Now you may know that his older brother, brother Eddie, mm-hmm. who was a kick returner for the Lions and a couple Vikings, of other teams, yeah. and a golfer, 
Walter, within four years, had surpassed Eddie as a golfer. Wow. And he was also big with a bow, just like Bo Jackson yeah. was, you know, and hunting and stuff like that. Race cars, that was Walter. I mean, he could just do – he could do almost anything. I went to the Senior Bowl with him, and their punter got hurt. Their kicker got hurt. So he punted and kicked besides, you know. Yeah. He was just just an amazing athlete. I, I got him here for Barbara Mandrell used to have a big celebrity softball tournament. Hmm. And I got Walter and then Ray Guy, who to me is the best punter you'll ever see oh, on yeah. this planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were just – they were good guys. They are amazing. They just versatile, could do everything. Ray Guy could do anything. He was a great pitcher, got drafted. He was a great safety. They didn't want to use him as a safety. And I was there when he in Hattiesburg when he signed his second contract. Um, and in there it had these clauses. He can be inserted in the game late in the game. He had the best arm on the team, you know. I mean, he could help you come from behind. He could do different things. All these things were laid out that he was capable of doing for the Oakland Raiders. Wow. Interesting. And he was a Georgia boy. Yeah. And ended up at Southern Mississippi, and the rest is history. But I never, ever, ever have seen anyone punt like that. He and Reggie Roby were in a class by themselves. Roby could just boom, big old thighs. Yeah. But Ray was six four, and all just muscle and and bone. Yeah. And could extend his oh the foot way above way his head. over his head. Hey, he could hit bombs. I know when uh, Jimmy Arnold, who was an All American punter here in Nashville at Vanderbilt. They were going to play Oakland in an exhibition game. And he'd ask me about Ray and stuff like that. I said, he's a great guy. You know, he's just quite an athlete. I said, walk up to him in the pregame and just tell him that I ask about him. <laughs> so he walks up. You know, the the Raiders just had that reputation yes, of being they did. nasty. Mm -hmm. They were nasty. They they were you know, when it hit when you hit the field, everybody was that way. And even Ray. Is that right? Sweetheart that he was. <laughs> and so Jimmy comes up and taps him on the shoulder, shoulder and said, uh, Ray, I, Charlie Mack just won. He said, why don't you get the hell out of my face? <laughs> and Jimmy <laughs> said, he just dropped his head and just walked off. <laughs> but they got to see each other later in a non-football type atmosphere. And, you know, it was yeah. fine. But being a rookie and coming up to your idol, best punter that ever lived, but he put that skull and crossbones helmet you know, the pirate with the uh, – Oh, yeah. And he was a different animal, man. Interesting. We've talked a lot about the athletes and coaches. Who were your major influences in, in announcing and, and sports casting? Well, Keith Jackson for sure. Yeah, I wanted to hear some stories about Keith. He helped Keith. me out with some, with some stuff he really did. Uh, Vern Lundquist, who to this day is a very good friend, fabulous announcer, uh, I told you earlier I hated that people tagged him with Uncle Vern later mm -hmm. in his life. Uh, he probably did it too long, but he's one of the best I have ever seen. And he and his wife, Mary, terrific people. Uh, Brad Nestler, who is a good friend, lives in Atlanta, uh, I think is wonderful. And a former fraternity brother of mine at Ole Miss, Ron Franklin, oh, yeah. is, to me is one of the best that ever lived. Uh, 
Those people in particular. Um, what was Keith Jackson like? Professional, good, big guy, funny. Uh, you could tell when he meant business. But I think he was just one of the most honorable announcers. And the, the people I mentioned, too, yeah. are as well. But I think he, he really was. But when it comes down to the college game, I was lucky enough to to be friends with Caleb Letford at Kentucky. And he was just something to behold. He was just such a class guy, such a nice guy. And there were several others. Mm. I mean, they really were that uh, – would do anything for you, help you. You know, with some, their egos were so big as we got into the later years Yeah, uh, that still do it. Um, just part of it, mm-hmm. you know. But that that's part of anything, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're in the spotlight. Yeah, if you don't some bo- people handle it very, very well, mm-hmm. and some people don't handle it all that well. Yeah, but that's the case with anything. Yeah. There's that level of belief you have to have in yourself. Sure. That to be the the lead. Yeah. But then there's a different level of humbleness while having that ego that, that usually separates the super elite from the great. Yeah. And it's, I just find it – I think of – like uh, Keith Jackson is – is college football to a lot of people. And always that, will be. Yeah, over the age of 30, probably. And Vern Lundquist, to me, is uh, just about anything, but in particular, on 16 at the Masters. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, good Lord, he's still doing it. Yep. And he does an uh, outstanding I, job. Absolutely. Outstanding job. As as an anchor or a lead, who is better, in your opinion, Enberg, Costas, or Nance? I don't know. They're all different. Yeah. But they're all very smart, have a great command of the English language, and their mind absorbs any game they're doing, and stuff comes out of their brains that gets over to us as normal human beings that make us comfortable, that make us feel confident in what he's saying. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't separate them. I could sep. I would put Musburger probably as three in that. Really? He told me a funny story one time. We were doing a, a CBS radio game. He was doing TV, um, and went over and talked to him a little bit about uh, what we were doing, and uh, his uh, his color commentator. McGuire was a – he was something else. I mean, he was <laughs> off this planet. Somebody else's, but I don't know where he is. And Musburger told me that what he would do, Al McGuire, that he worked for CBS, so he'd come in in these different cities and get there and they'd get the producer and director together. He said, God, my, all my, my suit, my pants, my shoes, everything – Lost on the airplane. So they say, they had to go get this. I mean, he'd go buy the most expensive blazers, shirts, you know, ties, and have, you have CBS logo. And he made, he did it with different producers and directors. Musburger said he has a, had a closet downstairs that had racks just like uh, Ralph Lauren 
<laughs> he had he had pulled that over on so many people through the years, <laughs> and he had enough blue blazers, gray shirts, I mean gray uh, pants, white expensive shirts, ties, whole bit. I mean he he could start his own store, <laughs> but he said he did all kind of neat things like that. He, I was just this this maybe sound very, it's, it is trivial, but it was it was Al McGuire. He had just gotten like a sandwich from Subway, and he talked, talk, talk, you know, New York guy, you know. Mm -hmm. up, 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 up. Um, and he wanted me to have his half of a sandwich. He said, "You need, you need, uh, you need energy. You, you, uh, here, take, eat this." I said, "No, I really, I've already." Eaten. He said, "No, you need this. You ought to go ahead and eat this sandwich." <laughs> and finally, I said, "Okay," so I took it. But he was just. He did all these – he did things kind of like outside the game like Dale Brown did at LSU where you go ride camels. And, of course, McGuire rode motorcycles for years and mm -hmm. went all over the country, you know. Yep. Uh, and I saw him uh, practice his Marquette team. And you talk about dog-cussing players now. He got every bit he could get out of him. And he got a lot of kids from the Bronx and different places, you know. Mm -hmm. And, boy, he was, whoo. You talk about rough on somebody now. Yeah. He was. But he was he was that guy. He came He came strictly out of Goodfellas. <laughs> he did. Uh, it's so good. But those, those kind of I, – I will always uh, feel very blessed that I got to meet so many great, great people. And then I found out who the bad guys were and the good guys were. Yeah. And uh, just stayed away from the bad guys and appreciated the good guys. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, it's interesting as, as you know, now you're kind of trending into like you're dabbling in a little bit of music. Who were your musical influences and what's, oh, wow. what's got you, uh, what's got you fired up about music? We've got a good band in college. Uh, I played in the band at Ole Miss called the Ole Miss Wanted. And I played in the band at Del I went to three schools in Mississippi. I was a Rhodes Scholar, R-O-A-D. <laughs> so uh, at Delta State, there was a band called the Delta Blues Review. It had a bunch of horns. And then I played here in town with Steve Gerald and the Sons of the Beach, Carolina Beach music, mm -hmm. not, you know, California. Yeah. And then I always did that. And when I basically retired, kind of, uh, I decided I'm just going to put a band together. My my mother even told me on her deathbed, she said, I'm not through. I'm not through yet. I want to do this or do that. And I've always felt the same way. Uh, so I've got a band now called C-Mac and Mississippi Magic. I'm from Mississippi. The bass player's from Mississippi, keyboard player's from Mississippi, and the other two guys from here. And we play a lot of great stuff. It surprises a lot of people when they hear us and see us. Mm -hmm. They're very surprised that it's pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, Who are your major influence? Who are your favorite bands? Well, I grew up near Memphis. Mm -hmm. Grew up in a little town called Holly Springs, Mississippi. Yeah. 45 miles uh, from Memphis. And I grew up with Stax Records. The way it was with the great stuff they had, uh, there are a lot of great garage bands around Memphis and in Mississippi. Yeah, I grew up around all that. And then, you know, Sun Records. 
And then Elvis, well, his mother lived 60 miles away in Tupelo, and he'd drive that Cadillac through Holly Springs because that's where he had to go in 78 then and get off and head toward, and he'd stop at Tyson's Drugstore, and he'd get ice cream or milkshake or whatever it was for his mother. And we see him come through there all the time. So, you know, it wasn't yeah. It wasn't as big a deal as I finally realized he was. Yeah. I was more into Carl Perkins, that rockabilly stuff, mm-hmm. Roy Orbison, uh, you know, things like that. But then got into the Mississippi Blues, which is just phenomenal. Yeah. Really, really, really good. And I've just always loved it. That's something that stayed with me. I'm not great at it. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sign with anybody. Sure. But we have a really good band. We can pretty much hold our own with anybody as far as a party band goes. With venues like Fox and Lock at Leaper's Fork, which used to be Puckett's. And, mm-hmm. you know, different parties like that. And we, uh, right after Christmas holidays, we played for a big one at Tunica National. Oh, fun. Bobby Walcott's club. Yeah, uh, we had a big party there, and it, it went over great. So, I don't have the money to put into it like a lot of people would, and it does take money. Yeah, it does. Uh, but we we get our bookings and stuff, and it's real therapy for me, and I'll do it as long as I can. Yeah. Have you seen the movie Elvis? Which one? The the one that's the, out right now. No, I haven't. Is it good? It's remarkable. Really? Like I didn't know the like. The true, well, I don't know if that's true or not, but like the story that was told about how they kept him in Vegas and prevented him from traveling internationally and like the the despair that he had and how it all, you know, it was, man, it's a really fascinating story. I knew very little about the, the innards of Elvis Presley yeah. and his career. Very complicated. Yeah, very complicated. And I was so impressed with how well they, they played that movie. And he was... Uh... Colonel Tom Parker did a lot for him, but then he sure took a big cut of everything he did. Yeah. I mean, which is more than anybody, a normal person, could ever spend in a lifetime. But I think Parker was good for him and bad for him. Yeah. He, I think he, from what I can understand, he really liked people. He played flag football all the time in his yard there at Graceland, and it wasn't so much flag. I mean, they were knocking the crap out of each other. Yeah. And he loved it. He loved uh, Ole Miss. He loved Memphis State. Uh, they'd put him, sneak him in the back, put him up in the press box a lot of time. He loved sports. Mm-hmm. He really loved football. Interesting. Yeah. I thought they did a really good job of portraying the whole story. Well, I've and, got and, to and, see and, it. And, and, and the dramatics of the end and how he was able to take the stage well, heavily drugged to be oh, to be functional. Understatement. And just shouldn't have let him do it. it. And just crushed it. But like it, at the end, it was over. Mm. But this is the first time I've ever seen Tom Hanks in a role where he was the bad guy. Oh, he is. Yeah, he's Colonel Tom Parker. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Whew. How about that? Yeah, I got to see that. It's um, it's really he did a great job. But I they, love they, the stuff on Netflix now about different artists. Uh, they a lot of people have done really good jobs with the different documentaries on Mm -hmm. a lot of these stars superstars whatever it may be yeah and a lot of it is very very well done yeah and you learn a lot yes i've seen so i've seen cash i've seen the one on ray charles i've seen the one on elton john i've seen the one on freddie mercury yeah and they've all done an outstanding job 
with portraying. Mm. So I was asking a friend of mine the other day which one I th- what what she thought was better was it uh, Cash or Ray, and she thought the one that that, that Cash was oh. so good, so good. He what what a guy. I mean he. Uh, if my mother were alive, she wouldn't want me to tell you this story, but I'm going to, yeah. since she's deceased, I'll tell yeah. you the story. <laughs> I was, I was going to school at Delta State in Cleveland, Mississippi. And this friend of mine who was on the, uh, committee that, you know, booked the acts and stuff like that, got Johnny Cash booked at the, uh, Ole Miss Coliseum. So we ride up and, and we overserved ourselves by the time we got there. So we were snookered, <laughs> to say the least. And so this friend of mine who played baseball at Delta State, he and I, Mike Blackburn, uh, go down. And we're, we had the tickets, but we didn't pay much attention to him. I mean, he said it was going to be on the front row, but it's like front, you know, where they've got – not a, we weren't up high. We were down low. We knew that. And so we had the tickets, and we were just, yeah, we were inebriated. And so we were trying to find our seats, and we'd go to the people said, now, you're one, and you're two. <laughs> and my mother and father never got out to go to anything. Oh, Mama loved Johnny Cash, so she's got seats, and they've got, binoculars and she turns to my dad and she says look hubert that looks like my god that's charlie (laughs) anyway the police chased us out uh the this friend of mine who's a great athlete he's a catcher at delta state dove into the crowd (laughs) then they caught him they handcuffed him in the crowd booed him booed the police the police let him go and so since we were up front, everybody kind of rushed the stage. And there's a picture in Life magazine that's shot behind Johnny Cash and that has me pinned up against the stage. I can't look at him because the stage is cutting at me half in two, <laughs> and I was also overserved. So I'm just like this, and Cash is right there. It's like a two-page spread. Wow. But that was that was funny. She said, "Oh my God, that is Charlie." It's interesting how his career like exploded, kind of dulled out, and then at the end of his career, he yeah. really got maybe what he deserved. the the last The last thing he did, what was it called? Hurt. Hurt. It was a nine inch nails cover. I couldn't. I could not. Oh, that just made me so sad, and it just it actually physically hurt me to see the video of him doing that, and then that song. Mm-hmm. I just. Uh, I'd rather have heard Big River or, you know, something like that at the end, redone. But he was so unique. He was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, for sure. In all of your travels, what are, the, what are some of the coolest venues you've ever watched a game or seen, seen something? Or have done a game? Um, favorite stadiums uh, for football is LSU. Yeah? Oh, man. What an experience is LSU. Uh, basketball, the way Memorial Gym used to be here, and then Rupp Arena, I got to uh, do some games there at Kentucky for three years, which I just loved, absolutely loved. Uh, baseball, 
right now the SEC has as a whole has the greatest stadiums in the country. Amazing. Yeah. You know, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, LSU, Florida's I think it's expanded theirs, but they're all good. Texas A and M. Uh one of the reasons I like Texas and Oklahoma, some people don't like them getting in, but I do because uh, of the TV radio markets, that's good for the league, mm-hmm. but just because they're so damn good. Yeah. And they've got so much that they put in their programs. Golf. I mean, my gosh. Look at the SEC now as a golf league. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and the women are really coming along, too, playing so much better. Ole Miss won uh, the team championship two years ago. I don't, did Stanford win it this year? I'm not sure. Women's. But um, any, at any rate, uh, and look at baseball. Mississippi yeah. State wins a World Series two years ago. Ole Miss wins it this year. I mean, it just tells you a whole lot about – and it's so refreshing now to see golf and to see baseball, to me. Yeah. And they're really thriving on national television, oh, both boy. sports. Both sports are thriving. The NCAA yeah. tournament for golf and baseball, yeah. the College World Series, it's better than the real World Series. Oh, it is. It's, yeah. it, I, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I don't think it, there's any comparison. As a Mississippi State graduate, I've watched many, many, many great teams. Well, you know, not, not win. And when, like last year, when or two years ago when we won, I was still figuring out how are we going to lose this game because I've watched us lose a game to Kentucky, winning by three points with one point one seconds left in a basketball game. So I know that it's possible. Yeah. Um, but I just think to myself, the. Uh, what it meant to the to, for Ole Miss to then went after Mississippi State to keep it in Mag, the Magnolia State, man, man, that's a big deal. You know, because a lot of people put a rap on Mississippi, and yep. I can say this: well, you went to Mississippi State, and I went to three schools in Mississippi, and I, I think a lot of the bad stuff is deserved, but not near as much as is thrown at that state, and. uh I never will forget when I was at South Carolina because I'd done play-by-play for Ole Miss, um, Kentucky, South Carolina, and then done mixed bag at Georgia. And we were on this trip with the athletic director. We rode in the buses with uh, big wigs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. The players had their separate buses. But kind of – poking at Mississippi and you're in South Carolina, you can't poke too much, but they were doing it. You know, <laughs> yeah. we've got a bigger stadium, yada, 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 yada. And so we drive up and they're saying, Oh, look at that little stadium. That's nothing like ours. And finally I just had enough. I said, look, they got this number of national championships at the time. They had more people drafted than anyone in NFL history. And I said, and then to prove my point, Ole Miss beat South Carolina that day in that little bitty stadium. <laughs> uh, I mean, there, there are just so many things that happen, and and I, I really have all the stops. Well, the places where I did play-by-play, uh, of course, it was wonderful the time I spent here in Nashville because – it was just in the 80s, it was just amazing. It was so good. And then doing Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. 
was really good in football and basketball, really good, which was, you know, a rarity. Yeah. But they were very good. Uh, being at Kentucky, even though it was for three years, I guess if I could have lived somewhere, stayed, and done what I did do for a long time, it'd be there. Yeah. Lexington. Oh, boy. People were so good. If you just look at basketball, it's unique to sit in the stands and listen to people talk basketball that know what they're talking about as opposed to people who don't have a friggin' clue. <laughs> no clue. Yeah, because there are plenty but of those. There are plenty of those. <laughs> and that's why I, I can't go and sit in a crowd now. Interesting. At a guy's, and I don't go to games now. It's too much of a hassle. Yeah. And for 35 years, I was going like four hours ahead of time to do a game, and then I'd come back and on the weekend do a coach's show. And it was just uh, – but it was a wonderful time then. Yeah. It really was a wonderful time. And the 80s was spectacular athletes, that kind of thing. Life goes on. Life goes on. The Mount Rushmore of football players. Who are the four, the four faces of college football to you? Some people won't agree. I mean, I've been asked about the Mount Rushmore of announcers. I've done mm -hmm. that. But but never players. But uh, speaking of specifically college football yeah. players. Yeah. So there'd be, what, four? Yeah. Five? Whatever. Uh, in no particular order, just up there. Archie Manning, Walter Payton, Herschel Walker, Bo Jackson. Interesting. That's just my yeah. Rushmore. How about uh, college basketball? Mm, college basketball. Golly, Bill. Pistol Pete Maravich. How good was that guy? People don't know. Oh, man. They just – I saw him twice live. Really? Once as a freshman at LSU playing Ole Miss. And then I saw him playing Ole Miss live in Oxford when he – was a sophomore or junior, something like that. Damn. I mean, they're, they're, I've been around a lot of great, great athletes, and I never knew the pistol, but just so absolutely amazing. And then, of course, there's Michael Jordan. I have to think about this a little bit. Michael Jordan, without question, and then there are others. It was just Ralph Sampson. He could be in there, that's for sure. Lou Alcindor. Yeah. I mean, that's there's so many in basketball. They're in football, too. Yeah. But to me, football just jumps out at me when you're talking about college, not the NFL, yeah. but college football players. Yeah. Those players were just dynamic. Yeah. It's fascinating how, how much college basketball has changed. In the last, not for the best, in my opinion. And the NBA, I won't turn it on. Yeah, it's. Tough. I think it sucks. It's tough. I really do. I don't. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Well, it's interesting because now, like, I do another podcast with Drew Maddox, right? And uh, great and, basketball and, player at Vanderbilt, and he's in really an incredible basketball mind. Yeah, and he um, he talks about the impact that Steph Curry has made. Oh, in, in, a good impact. Yeah, I mean, the, class act, great player. And Everything. We, and we've talked about, like, we think that for the betterment of the game. He has been. 
where we've wondered. But who, there are many more on that other side, I think, that have killed it. Yeah, for sure. They've killed the goose that laid the golden basketball. Yeah. I think that if they could figure out a way, he doesn't think they'll, they'll make the court wider. Drew doesn't think. But if they could figure out the math, I know they can. They could probably do it in 10 minutes, what the actual f- foot line f- would be so that the average NBA player shoots 33% from three so that it's not a strategic advantage yeah. to hang out in that baseline where it's actually closer to 42 or 43%. Because now basically basketball is three-point shots and dunks. That's it. It's all there is. And, and there's it no used stra- to very be. little strategy. And I hate to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but they – Running plays in basketball games, and they still screen a lot, but it's it's a screen for a drive and a shot or a dunk. Uh, a pick and roll is what they use all the time. Instead of five passes, and then you're looking at you got your play set up. You're going here, you're going there, inside out. I miss that, yeah. and I think a lot of people miss that. Oh yeah, that's now it's more what you see in the women's game. Yes, the women's game is funner. To watch if you're interested in the fundamentals of yeah, basketball. Yeah, until I get to the NCAA tournament. And then I love the NCAA tournament still. Oh, sure. Uh, in basketball. But games leading up to that, I'm not much on it. Yeah. I almost, almost fall asleep on almost all regular seasons now. Oh, yeah. I do, too. Yeah. It's pretty And you're not near as old as I am. No, you're right. But, but that's the case with a lot of people. Yep. A whole lot of people. And that's why I think – especially as we're sitting here in the South, but the country too, college baseball, college golf are just amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And I think they've just, I think they've given us all more to see and feel good about because the competition is so good. Yeah. And in those cases with those Sports, with the exception of one team that doesn't live. I mean, it's a lot of good sportsmanship. Nobody's flipping the bird at anybody, mm-hmm. just about, which is way, way off base. Yeah, uh, it, it's just refreshing to see. In, in my sport of golf, we're in a pretty unique time right now with uh, Live Golf and Greg Norman's Saudi-backed situation versus the PGA Tour. Ego's kind of big, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and I think it both like both the PGA Tour and Greg Norman, their egos are, there. It's and it's it's so fascinating because I think the PGA Tour has made some tremendous errors. Oh yeah, some massive massive errors, yep. and I would be remiss to think that I'm not quite sure that I want the PGA Tour to not be number one, but they need to learn the lesson. I mean, they're they're swindling money and they're keeping money from these players. And it's just so obvious because now they're starting to raise the purses. Oh yeah, they got this PIP money. This and live has caused that. Oh, for sure. And I think what's going to happen if if and it's a big if if live gets official world golf ranking points, the PGA Tour is in really big trouble. Oh yeah, they're in mm-hmm. really, really, really big trouble. And if now obviously then then without the world official world golf points. Then live players can't qualify for the Masters right. after after their exemptions run out unless they win another major, right? So therein lies this dilemma: they're going to be excluded from the major championships, and if they do, live golf will be short lived. But I can't see it. I can't see them losing in court. I can't see that live tour losing in court 
over antitrust and you know right the, that not, part of it yeah. yeah that part of it, I just can't see them I can't see them losing because how can you they're not salaried employees so you can't really say that why how can you say they can't play and really you know I think that's where you're going to run into some interesting interesting issues but the, I think that what we're going to see here very soon I think Monahan is going to be replaced yeah about time. And they're going to bring somebody in that can work and figure out a way to make this the the DP World Tour, which is the European Tour, the PGA Tour, and live to somehow coexist together, where the best of the best convene eight times a year, and then let people just do what they do. Interesting, because I think the bigger challenge here is the Saudis have more money than than they can ever spend. And when you start throwing that kind of money around, like I was talking to my sons, I said, listen, guys, let's just say for the sake of conversation that to get all the stars they want for these 48 players, they spend $4 billion doing that. That is 4% or slightly less than 4% of the amount of money they have to spend. That's less than the sales tax you just paid for that burger you got. That's nothing. That's chump change. The amount of money, I mean, they threw $800 million at Tiger, $500 million at Rory, and they both said no. Well, they can, yeah. and they did. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen because I think that we're already starting to see one little chink in the armor. There have been some players, lesser-named players, that joined Live that now they're excluded because they found other people to replace them. So not that anybody would know this guy named Pablo Larrasabal is from Spain. No, but he's you know he's won on the European tour. He decided to go cash in his check, and I can't remember how much they paid him. It was reasonable. It'd be good enough to make a person like that think about it. He makes the first makes the first event. They start to get more stars. Now he's excluded. He's got nowhere to play. Yeah. So when you start running with only forty eight people, boy, now you're in trouble. And 54 holes, right? And 54 holes. I'm How big so, a turnoff is 54 holes as opposed to 72? That doesn't really bother me that much, personally. Uh, I think that the amount of players that are competing is even more of a concern. Uh, I like the team aspect of it. I think that that's a, a unique driver. Yep. I just think that they should figure out a way to get 72 people. If they get 72 people, because that's actually what ends up on the weekend of a PGA Tour event. You know, now you got something that's legitimate. I, I'm obviously, 72 holes, I get it. But 54 holes, I mean, at the end of the day, 54 yeah. holes is, you know, outside of the PGA Tour, that's pretty standard on the LPGA and the Champions Tour. Right. You know, obviously, well, that's the big – that's like the difference between five sets and three sets in tennis. Men play five, women play three, largely, right? So, okay. But excluding that, I really believe the PGA Tour is in big trouble. And if they get a world official world golf ranking points – Buddy, it's it is it is big time trouble for the PGA Tour. We'll have to all watch that very very closely. Yeah, a lot of f- people don't know that. Yeah, you know they don't. The yeah. majority of people don't, and they're just looking at it as your trader. Wait a minute, that's a lot of money. How could you turn that down? And so they're kind of weighing it back and forth and back and forth. Um, who do you think on the Live Tour? Who are the stars? I mean, real players who can win big. Bubba Watson? Uh, I mean, the, the thing is that almost everybody that's gone so far are on the south side of their career, except maybe well, Dustin correct. Johnson. Except for maybe D- Dustin. Yeah, well, Dustin Johnson Dustin's on the, the top, player. but trending negatively. Kepka's at the top, trending negatively. Right. 
They don't have any young guys. But see, here's the sneaky genius of what, what Greg Norman has done. Norman is now going after these college players and guaranteeing them money. Right. Right. So now they're going to attack the lifeblood of the PGA Tour, which is college players. And you give these college players that know how the road to get to the PGA Tour is excruciatingly difficult. All of a sudden, you give this kid out of Oklahoma $10 million, and he's guaranteed $10 million. I mean, literally, you're 22 years old. You don't have to go like mini tour hopping, grind on the Corn Ferry Tour, and by the time you're 29, get on the PGA Tour. You're just going to show up, and you're standing right beside Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson and Paul Casey and Patrick Reed. I'm taking, I can't, I, what kid's going to turn that down? With a chance to maybe beat him. What's exactly That's right. That's my way of thinking yeah. anyway. Because you talked about going south, you know, with a yep. few of them, not all of them mm-hmm. that you mentioned, but, uh, you got a chance and you're there. You're in the big show because you're covered. Some good money manager can take like the guy who got what ten million dollars and start putting it in the right places and taking care of that young player and yeah. family and all that kind of stuff. If you really look at it, because that is one of the most brutal things I have ever seen, and you got to qualify. You got to get your PGA card. You have to suffer. When I was living in Athens, Georgia, we had what is the Corn Ferry Tour now? I can't remember what it was. It was either then. Nike or uh, Buy dot com. But anyway, or, it, yeah, it, it was amazing. The feel was incredible because uh, I was a starter and Kepka. And all these great guys now that are just super superstars are coming through there. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could think of the player. Uh, his son was playing, Rod Curl, I thought had passed away. He was playing in the thing. Yeah. And Rod Curl must have been 50. Mm-hmm. But that all those players coming through, man, there were some studs that came through there. Yep. I just think that you know the the arguments for both sides are turning to be pointless. Tiger's speech that he gave at the Open Championship about how yeah. important it is to earn, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I listened to it first. I'm like, oh man, that's pretty big. Tiger doesn't make statements like that. No. And then I'm like, wait a second. His hello world speech started with a hundred million dollar contract from Nike, and if you want to talk about where that money comes from, shake your head. Hold on a second. Whoa, Tiger, back off that horse you're talking about. You had $100 million in your pocket before you teed it up in Milwaukee. And he's, you know, I, I admire him. I, I Playing on one leg, and he shot, what, 78 final round, something like that. It just, your heart goes out to him. But then he's, I mean, he's got it all. Yep. Why would he even want to consider something like that? Yeah. He doesn't have to. That's right. At least that's the way I look at it. I mean, I thought the speech was well done, but I'm thinking, now, what if that's me? What would I do? Yeah. And what he, he's done is make a gazillion dollars. Uh, and McElroy, too, they don't need it. Yeah, the money's not the big deal. I mean, and you fall in love with the PGA a little bit more that way. Mm-hmm. But if not, if you're not in that that group, you got to think, man, I can make in two or three tournaments more than I'd make in a year. Yeah, I guess that would be. I mean, you think about like Bryson DeChambeau making like 180 million dollars up front. Uh, 
I mean, that's and where that's has gener- he been lately? That's generational wealth, man. It's a game changer. Sure, it is. How do you like? And Mickelson, two hundred million, man. I just like. How do you say no? I have certainly learning more about Mickelson because I used to be a really big fan. That's changed with me now. And then uh, with a shark, that their egos are just so incredibly large. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, golfers are unique. Not that any professional athlete aren't, but in, in most sports, you got a team. You got teammates. Golfers have to be radically self-confident. So the ego oh, comes gosh. with the game. The ego comes with it. And you have to learn how to navigate it as uh, a part of the team. Mm-hmm. Because you can't believe how unbelievably self-confident they have to be. And they're the most fragile also. I mean, literally, I say this all the time. Those guys out there are one shot away from feeling they can beat anybody and one shot away from feeling they can beat nobody. It just takes one. One shot, and they're on a run, and one shot, and you never hear from them. And I just find it interesting to see what's going to happen as the, they start to attack these young players and try to get the young players. If they get Cameron Smith, Colin Morikawa, and Patrick Cantlay, which is the, the rumor mill. Oh, man. Buddy, they get Colin Morikawa and Cam Smith. They have a and, chance at them? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're wow. talking $200 million. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, once again, they're thinking to myself, you know, what are the chances of me chasing down Tiger's or Jack's major record? Not real high. Am I really chasing history? Am I really chasing history? Or do I want to set my family up for the rest of our family's existence? That is it. And that's like there's there's the people that are playing for history, and the people that are playing for history already have all the money. And the people that aren't playing for history are like, well... Well, it sure would be nice to never have to worry about anything like that ever again. And especially in this world where we're just getting destroyed, in my opinion, mm-hmm. financially, oh, yeah. uh, as a human race, uh, something's happening every day to take money out of our pockets and make it too expensive to live almost. Yeah. And and you got that on you. I don't care what you are. Um Unless you're just a multi-million or billionaire, sure. Yeah. But that's on that on that tour where people are so good and it's so fragile, so competitive, and let's say you're an injury away. Yeah. And people don't think about that a whole lot with golfers, but you've seen it a lot, and I've seen some of it. And so you want to take care of your family. Yeah. Uh, and just be reasonable about trying to make a really comfortable living. Yeah. You have to think about it. You've got to think about it, for sure. Well, one of the, the stock final questions uh, is is this one, and this is probably the most famous one for, for my show, and it comes from a guy named Jason Silva, who's a social media guy. He's big into yeah. you know, um, you know, existentialism and making you think. And he looked into his cell phone, and he made this little 45-second minute clip and he said, in Mexico, they say that people have three, three, li- or three deaths. The first death is the day you find out you're going to die. The second death is the day that you die. And the third death is the last time anybody ever mentioned your name. When you think back to what you want to leave, when you want people to think about Charlie Mack, hmm. what is it that you want to do so that you extend that third life? I've thought about this, you know. Not in the fact that uh, 
some people would disagree when I was working, but ego-driven, but I didn't have formal training I had to learn. Nobody gave me anything I had. I got everything I got mm. on my own, everything, and yeah. I was proud of that. Um, but in the long run, and I love people, and people I don't like now, I will not be around. I'm just, I just seen enough of that, yeah. but there are a lot of wonderful people out there. Archie Manning's dad committed suicide, I think his sophomore year, and when his dad was taking him to Ole Miss for summer workouts, I think his freshman year, he said, son, I want you to do well. He said, but I want you to be a good guy. And that's how I would hope people would look at me because I didn't set the world on fire. I had success, sure. I had success, I did. But I, I just looked at that as a way to make a living that I liked. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had absolutely no idea. And sports was a way that I thought I could get inside and, and finally do something with some help from friends. I had a lot of help from friends. Really helped me a lot. But I want to be considered a good guy. That's really that's really my deal. Yeah. Being a good guy. Well, I can assure you of that, my friend. Well, I appreciate that. You too. I, I think that it's a uh, it goes without saying that it's absolutely hilarious. Like you, you left Nashville. I, I taught you some out at Hermitage Golf Course yep. back in the early 2000s. You disappeared. You went to South Carolina. I didn't. And then you show back up again. I'm like, I didn't even recognize you, but your voice is stored in my memory file. I'll tell you something very quickly if we've got time. Yeah, sure. Because I had been, uh, I'd done Ole Miss, came to Nashville for 14 years, did Vanderbilt. Then went to Kentucky for three, South Carolina for 10, came back here, then went to Georgia for a few years. Uh, and I'm doing a – it is a South Carolina basketball game, and I'm walking into the arena for a shoot-around on a Friday, and I feel somebody behind me, and this guy walks up to me and taps me on the shoulder. He said – with this puzzled look on his face, he said, are you Charlie Mack? I said, well, yes, thank you for st- – I appreciate you. He said, man, I thought you were dead. <laughs> I mean, blank expression. Man, I thought you were dead, and I just, just I said I was. How'd I look? <laughs> and so, it just came to me out of the blue. I don't know, but that guy was serious as a heart attack. I love it, man. I well, thought you were dead, but you know that's the thing, man. When you when you do good things, and you deliver good work, and honest work, right? You just call it like you see it. You don't right. fluff. You don't have an agenda with your commentary. You just you're calling it like you see it. You study it. You want to make you want to have good conversation. You want to make people enjoy and think at the same time. And to me, I I've, I feel this way. And I didn't mean to cut you off there, but um, I just want to. Uh, you don't leave a le- because people forget you. They're gonna forget me. Just my family and some friends are gonna remember. It wasn't a big deal being in the media all those years and doing all that stuff. They'll forget. That's forgotten, man. Yeah, that's forgotten. It's, like your family, those two beautiful boys that are going to be great players. When it, they're going to look back and you say, yeah, he was in the media and he did this. He taught golf. He was around, uh, they're going to forget it. You're going to remember what you've got, what you had, and be appreciative. Yep. And uh, you're not King Kong. Nobody is. That's right. But probably that's a bad analogy. But, I mean, 
you're not uh, uh, on the top 100 list for eight or ten years with a record. That's right. You're just not. That's right. But those sweet, sincere, kind, and tough people that you mentioned who are straight down the line, you never, ever forget. Yeah. Never forget. No doubt. Well, Charlie, I can't thank you enough for sharing oh, your story. Oh, I've enjoyed this so much. Thank I you, for, thank you for coming on The Verge. Yeah, and by the way, I'm alive. <laughs> yes, you are. And well. I felt dead before, but I'm actually alive. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on, buddy. Thank you. you. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.